Pakistan. Today is found in Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her, who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning again, and welcome to Christ Community's downtown campus. Um, you know, growing up around the Christmas season, I was that kid. Um, I was that kid who could make any other elementary kid go from, you know, this hope-filled smile to hysterically crying um, with just one conversation over the lunch table. And it wasn't always intentional, but I just wanted them to know the truth about Santa, you know? Um, you know, I, I remember having these conversations and watching, watching as the glistening in their eyes would turn to horror at the thought of a dead St. Nicholas six feet under. Um, and yeah, my mom would love those phone calls. And yeah, I was the kid who killed other kids' fairy tales. I didn't always get it. And granted, I didn't get a lot of things as a kid. Maybe I still don't get a lot of things. Um, but now I'm starting to understand maybe, just maybe, why those kids were so crushed. I think partly it's because all of us, I think almost every single one of us in here truly wishes the impossible, the amazing, the fantastic, the riveting, the, the fairy tales were actually true, don't we? I mean, we all love impossible stories. The box office shows that. We never really grow out of loving impossible stories. I mean, who doesn't wish Narnia was a real place that was accessible through the door of your wardrobe or Gandalf was always there to protect you or Superman, especially the most recent Superman, you know, catch you when you fall, right? Um, we love the impossible stories, even though we know, in fact, they are impossible, fictional. But why? Why do we love these impossible stories? I think, I think the reason we love these impossible stories is because we were created for one big impossible story. Now, if you're here this morning and you're a little skeptical, maybe a little cynical, you say, no, 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 Gabe. I think, it's, I think you've got it the other way around. Instead of us loving impossible stories because we were created for one big impossible story. I actually think we love impossible stories so much we created or fabricated one big impossible story 
to make believe in. And look, I get it. I'm someone who loves clear explanations just as much as the next guy. I love simple, rational, scientific. I mean, remember, I'm the kid who made other kids cry because I was dedicated to facts. I love it, right? But here's the thing. Faith doesn't have to be in opposition to science, thoughtfulness, or rationality. And here's the difference. The significant difference, I think, between all of these big impossible stories and this one big impossible story is that this one big impossible story actually claims to be true. And not in the way that most religions claim to be true. This one big impossible story actually claims to be historical, grounded on the earth in actual events, engaged through research, eyewitness accounts, personal testimonies, fact-checking. And the person who penned the passage that was read for us before, uh, before us earlier in the, in the mess or the service, was a guy by the name of Luke from the first century. He didn't grow up Jewish. Um, he was a physician, which means he was highly educated and probably one of the most unlikely of characters to believe that what happened to Jesus actually happened and therefore to believe in Jesus, a Jewish Messiah. And, you know, when we start to get to Luke's gospel here that was read for us, we start to think, okay, this was written a long time ago, but even though this was written in the first century, Luke is talking with people who talked and walked with Jesus, who watched Jesus. He, he has this pesky idea that he highlights at the very beginning of his gospel account. Right at the very beginning, he actually believes, he actually believes that eyewitness testimony makes credible history regardless of when it was written or when it is read. Reliable eyewitness testimony makes credible history regardless of when it was written or when it's read. And I tend to agree with him. And when we come to, to the gospel account of Luke, and we begin to actually take authorial intent, Luke is trying to preserve and portray accurate history in his gospel. If we take that serious, when we start reading instantly, if not instantly, very quickly, we start to say, what a strange way to save the world. <laughs> right? I mean, there's a lot of really weird things going on in the Christmas story. You know, virgins giving birth, angels showing up, you know. And we saw last week um, that an elderly couple, Zach and Liz, I call them, Zachariah and Elizabeth, they, they were way past childbearing years. And Zachariah, he was a good priest, so he's in the temple in Jerusalem, and he's there, and then God sends the angel Gabriel and says, hey, Zach, you're going to have a kid. And Zach's like, hey, 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 you know, I'm pretty old here, and you know what that means. Um, Elizabeth is pretty old, and, and you know what that means. So how on earth are we going to have a kid? And he keeps pressing in, and the angel Gabriel, because Zachariah won't believe what God has said, actually strikes him mute as a sign that God will fulfill what he said he's going to do. And when we read that at first blush, we want to say, what a strange way to start the story, right? How weird. But actually, the further we dig in to this beautiful and possible story, the more we find how brilliant God is in writing this story that he wants to invite us into. And today, we're going to continue in that story. Luke, as we've said, is not an eyewitness. He wasn't around or he wasn't proximate to Jesus during his life, death, and resurrection. But he's talking with people who were proximate during Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And so he's in a similar boat to a lot of us doing his research and trying to bring together an orderly account of things. And if I were Luke, and I'm trying to find out about the birth of Jesus, I think for me, the person who'd make my short list is Mary, 
right? She probably had a pretty up-close and intimate experience with the birth of Jesus, just saying. And I think the more I read of Mary and the more I understand from the Christmas story, I think, what a strange response to this impossible story. What a strange response. And what's even more interesting is that her response actually now, for all who long to follow Jesus, becomes the guiding framework as to how we are to respond to this impossible, big, true story. Well, around AD 60, um, we have other historical documents that highlight that Luke was in a province called Ephesus quite frequently. And we also believe and have decent evidence to point to the fact that Mary, the mother of Jesus, found herself residing in Ephesus after the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So, why is that important, besides a little footnote maybe in your Bible or another historical document? Why this is important is is that it's not far-fetched with Luke's desire to really get at history, to gather eyewitness accounts, and now finding himself proximate to Mary. It's not far-fetched to assume that Luke actually sought out Mary, the mother of Jesus, and had an interview. It's not outside of the realms of possibility. And look, I know there's no historical record for this, but I want you to imagine, outside of the historical record that Luke gives us, <laughs> I guess that's a pretty big deal, right? Um, there's no historical account of the actual interview, but how Luke brings us the information in the gospel here. I want you to imagine Luke coming to the door of Mary through the Christian networks, right? And he finds out where Mary is, and he knocks on the door, and Mary opens the door, an elderly lady and says, are you Luke? And he's like, yeah, that's weird. How do you know my name? Um, And she says, well, I've heard you're bringing together an orderly account of all the historical things that happened with Jesus. Why don't you come in? I'd love to talk with you. And she brings him in, and they sit in these two chairs in a little corner, or probably more in a Middle Eastern culture. It was probably a couple blankets and some pillows. Um, And they lounge together at table, um, talking about Mary's experiences, her memories with Jesus. And I can only imagine Luke sitting across the table from Mary thinking, what on earth am I going to ask? Out of all the questions that are coming, what am I going to ask? And for me, one of the first questions that would probably pop up is, Mary, if you have one thing you want to tell people about your part in the story, what would it be? If you've got one, one thing you could tell people about your part in the story, what do you think it, could, what do you think it would be? And Mary, I can only just imagine her smiling, looking back and saying, I'm so glad you asked this, Luke, because as I think about the life that I've experienced with Jesus, the one thing I want everybody to know is that God loves the impossible. God loves the impossible. And when we look at the life of Mary here in our passage this morning, it just jumps off the page. God loves the impossible, and that's why he picks impossible people. This is why God prefers impossible methods. This is why God pursues impossible faith. God loves the impossible. That's why he picks impossible people, prefers impossible methods, and pursues impossible faith. Now, after I asked that question, if I were Luke, my first question would be, and I'm sure Mary got this question a lot, was, Mary, so why you? Why do you think God called you to carry the Son of God? And when we come to the first part of our passage this morning, we see Luke's capturing of Mary's unexpected expected answer, that God picks impossible people. If you read through our passage, it's not hard to, mar- to imagine Mary actually communicating with Luke in first person, retelling her history. And it would probably go something like this from chapter one. Where should I begin? Um, 
Well, it probably, I know this is going to seem irrelevant, but I didn't know it at the time, but Elizabeth was six months pregnant. Stay with me. Um, Back then, I lived in a town called Nazareth. It was a small town, and I was betrothed to this really honorable, nice guy named uh, Joseph. He had a pretty awesome lineage back to King David. He was pretty phenomenal, and I was pretty excited about him, and we tried to have an honorable relationship. We obeyed God's law. I was a virgin, even up to the point where we were going to look forward to the betrothal, meeting its consummation and marriage, and then this angel pops up. It's not something you really forget. There's an angel kind of showing up, and I was a bit terrified and a bit confused, and the angel says to me, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. And I remember thinking, who, me? Is there anyone else in here? What's, what's going on? How do I make sense of what's happening around me? And the angel knew I was getting really terrified because he says, don't be afraid, Mary, for you found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you should call his name Jesus. And then he goes on to talk about how the son that I'm going to have is one of the most unique boys in the whole universe of all time because he's the son of the most high God. And he's actually the Messiah, the one that's promised throughout history that everyone is looking for to finally reign forever. No pressure, right? (laughs) I'd feel a bit overwhelming. Well, if we pause here in Luke's account and start to return to this question, so why is Mary so unique? I think there are a couple of things to think about. One, Mary is from Podunk, Nazareth. Okay, this is backwoods. This isn't the place most people think the who's who of Israel are coming from. Nazareth was a poor agricultural community. Every time people encountered Jesus, what did they say? Can anything good come from Nazareth? Right? Nobody's expecting anything from Nazareth. Then we come to the fact that she's very young. Mary is very young, probably as young as 12 years old. And then she's a woman in first century culture, which sounds crazy, but in the first century culture, women were isolated. They were placed on the outskirts. They were many times not listened to, not engaged, demeaned. And so you have this preteen young woman in first century culture. No one's going to pay attention to her, especially one from Nazareth. And now she finds out, well, this is great. I'm going to be pregnant out of wedlock (laughs) in a shame-based culture. Could you imagine trying to explain to your parents and your neighbors, no, I swear there was this angel. Oh, right, Mary. Mm-hmm. You know, there was an angel. Yeah, what was his name? Um, you know, and, and, and here's the thing. You have all of these characteristics that make Mary almost an impossible person and key candidate for what God's about to do. Now, if you're here this morning and you're from a Catholic background, I want you to know how excited we are that you're here. And I also want you to hear the admiration of Mary is good and it's right. And we'll get to why that is here in a minute. But I think one of the areas that I've always wrestled through is the Catholic doctrine. And I think it's difficult to embrace, mainly because it doesn't show up in the eyewitness accounts of Scripture, is concerning Mary's immaculate conception. It comes up a lot around this time of year. And this doctrine was clarified and further uh, placed within Catholic dogma in 1854 by Pope Pius IX. You know, immaculate conception, maybe not the most immaculate picture, but it's all we could find on Wikipedia. So there you go. Um, but what, he, what, what, uh, what the immaculate conception doctrine highlights is that in order for Jesus to be born without original sin, to truly be sinless, then Mary had to be born without original sin. Some say that she was born as a virgin, 
or want to say that she was born from a virgin, um, and others want to say that that doesn't matter, but the big component with the Immaculate Conception is that Mary was born immaculate, without sin, so that she would be a good enough virgin for Jesus to be born without sin. And here's the thing, okay, we don't admire Mary because the Catholic Church has said that she was born without sin. I just can't find that in Scripture. And that's my anchor point. That's where I go to find, okay, where do the eyewitnesses, where are they pointing us towards? But the reason that we admire Mary, just as a side note, the reason we admire Mary is because of how she responded, as we see in the eyewitness accounts, to finding out that as a virgin, she is to give birth to Jesus, the Savior of the world. Is Mary faithful? Oh, yes. She is so, so wonderful as an example to follow in terms of faith. But is she special because of her birth? No. We don't find that in Scripture. Now, that may seem really weird, okay, and really strange. Why are we talking about this? And then the other component is, okay, this doesn't seem like this is the way God would work. But it actually, when you look at God's track record, it points to exactly how God works throughout history. If you look throughout the history of Scripture, God always picks impossible people. Always. He's picking the ones that everyone else overlooks, the ones that no one suspects, the ones that everyone else has thrown away. If you look in ancient Near Eastern culture, there's a thing called primogeniture. Put that in your word for the day. It's the idea that, that was a lot louder than I expected. It's the idea that the the firstborn in the family, the firstborn male, would receive the primary amount of inheritance and blessing. And the second and third and fourth born male would receive little to nothing in terms of inheritance. They would receive something, but not the lion's share. And what we see, actually, when you look throughout the history of Scripture is that God does something amazing. Time and time again, what does he do? He chooses the youngest. He chooses the one, the impossible decision that's countercultural. And then also we look many times, there are times where barren women who are ostracized from the community because they cannot have a child, and then God gives them a child, and they're these mighty men of God. God picks impossible people. When he goes to pick a nation, who does he pick? A mighty nation, he picks a nation of slaves being held captive by Egypt. God always picks impossible people. That's who he is. That's what he does. Now, middle school is kind of a rough period for all of us, I think. It was especially tough for me. Maybe we all think that when we look back at it. It was really hard for me. Um, But for me, we were moving from Mississippi to Ohio, and I had really bad acne, um, I had a comb over, I had, um, you know, I had a southern twang and a northern land, and also there was a time our family wasn't that well-to-do, we were a single, fam- or single parent home, and my mom was doing her best, and so we didn't have the greatest of clothes, so one day I decided to wear my sister's clothes to school. It was not as weird as you think, guys, it was Eddie Bauer unisex clothes, all right, so no one would have known unless I would have told them, and I told them. I don't know what was wrong with me. <laughs> Uh, I wasn't the smartest in middle school, it was the hormones. Um, you know, and, and, and here's the deal. I was never in middle school what anyone would characterize as the cool kid, the one that everybody wanted to be around. But for some reason, by God's grace, he's the one who picks the weird kids, isn't he? He's the one who picks the impossibles. He's the one who picks the ones nobody else would pick. That's just who God is. That's how gracious and good he is. And it should lead us to ask this important question. If you're not one of the impossibles, what hope do you have? If you're not one of the impossibles, what hope do you have? What do I mean? What I mean is, if you're someone who really thinks you deserve God's grace, or you're a really good contender to be a part of God's mission, oh, God would do really great if he had me as a part of this. 
then you're probably low on his pick. That sounds crazy, doesn't it? What do I mean again? If you look in the gospel accounts, you have the Pharisees and the religious people, which if we're honest, most of us in here are like them, um, where we really feel like once God finds us, that God has found a really good find. Meaning, everything about us, even though we may be a little rough around the edges, we're like the, the gold mine in the back of someone, someone's garage they find on American Pickers, you know? Oh, yeah, you're a little rough, but this is amazing. I finally found the really great thing. And you're like, oh, God, I'm a really good find. I'm so glad you found me. This is awesome. When in reality, all you're doing is putting on your sister's clothes, okay? It just doesn't work that way. You're trying to be someone you're not. Are you the kind of person who's surprised that God would save you? Are you the kind of person who's surprised that God would save you? If you're not, then there's a good chance that you haven't met him yet. There's a good chance you haven't met him yet. Now, some of you this morning may find yourself in an opposite extreme. You feel like the impossible. We're, we're closing in on the end of our year, and December 31st feels like actually a deadline to all the things you didn't change in your life, all the goals you didn't achieve, your New Year's resolutions. Remember those? I don't remember mine either, so that's okay. But you, you feel like, man, I'm one of the impossibles. God can never do anything with me. I can never get anything right. My life is always screwed up. I actually got an email from a friend recently this past week, and he wrote, and he said, Gabe, everyone thinks I'm not going to make it. We know people like that in our lives. Maybe that's what you think you are. I'm going to fail. Everybody thinks I'm going to fail again, that I'm a lost cause, and I deserve to fail for all the people I've hurt in the, in the past. And if that's you, if that resonates with your heart this morning, then there's really good news. Because God always picks the impossibles. That's his, that's his way of doing it. He always picks those who are impossibles. If that's not you, it's time to get low. To realize that you are one of the impossibles that God longs to pick. Not because you're that good. You're not the hidden treasure in the back of the garage or in the back of someone's barn. But because God is that good. He's that gracious. While we were yet enemies of God, that's when he dies for us. That's who our God is. And until we get that, we'll never get God. Now, let's return to our interview here. You can imagine Luke is now chomping at the bit to figure out, you know, and have Mary finish out this story. So you can say, Mary, okay, so this angel shows up to you. You're the most unlikely of candidates. You're a virgin. You're pretty young. You're not married. And now you're pregnant and you're going to give birth to the Son of God. How does he say this is going to happen? right? Because even Mary knows, has never heard of a virgin giving birth to anyone. Anybody else in here? Um, no, I promise. That was it. That was a virgin. Um, nobody, right? And actually, there's one scenario back by a prophet named Isaiah where he talks about a young virgin giving birth and it being assigned to a king. But that word for virgin is actually just a really young woman who actually engages in intercourse. Where in this case, it's actually Mary is a virgin to the strictest of senses, that's pretty clear, right? Um, no intercourse. She, she knew God here. She knows God works most commonly in the ordinary days and in the ordinary ways. But it's in these moments of redemptive history and major moments of redemptive history that she finds out that God prefers impossible methods. You see, God picks impossible people, but he prefers impossible methods. And so Mary asks the angel, how do you think this is going to happen? Translate 21st century. Gabriel, have you ever taken health class? You know? I'm a virgin. 
And she remembers this kind of vague answer that the angel Gabriel gives her in verse 35. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, this is how the child you will conceive will be holy, the Son of God. In other words, the Holy Spirit, a non-physical, personal presence is going to overshadow you and boom, you're going to be pregnant. It's not meant to be perverted, but it sure is strange, right? (laughs) And... To show that this is actually going to happen to Mary, the angel tells her, you know your cousin Elizabeth? Remember, she's six months pregnant. Mary started there. She's actually pregnant. She's older. She's a lot older than you are. And Mary, I want you to know, a womb that you never thought was going to be working is working because God is doing something. And if he can do something, and the oldest cousin you know is giving birth to a baby when she's been barren her whole life, why can't he give life? even to a virgin's womb, to give birth to a baby. And once again, Mary, if you were Mary, and if I were Mary, I would still be wondering, but how? And one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture, and actually one of my favorite verses in this passage is verse 37, for nothing will be impossible with God. Did you get that? Nothing, not a zilch. Nothing will be impossible with God. With God. The Greek word nothing actually just means nothing. So there's nothing to dig in there to. So here's the deal nothing will be impossible for God, and He can do the impossible and make it possible. That feels really strange again. Um, but if you look back to God's track record, it starts to make a lot of sense. If you look throughout history, and let's just maybe dive back into the Egyptian scenario where Israel is enslaved to uh, the Egyptian power at that time. What does God do? Does he raise up a military warrior to bust Israel out of Egypt? Or what does he do? He sends plagues. Why? Because he's showing his power that he is the one true God. When Egypt is finally like, look, we're annoyed with you guys. Just get out of here. We're sick. And then they kind of change their mind and say, yeah, we were annoyed, but we still want you to be our slaves. So they start chasing them, you know, when they're right there at the Red Sea and Israel feels trapped God actually parts the Red Sea. And we're always trying to figure out explanations. How could this have happened, you know? God parts the Red Sea. They cross on dry ground. And then the the Red Sea crashes down and destroys one of the strongest military powers in the world at that time. Then when they get into the promised land, they come to a, a little city called Jericho with really tall walls. And they don't know what to do. They're slaves. They're not a warring nation. And so they come, and what does God have them do? Okay, I want you to walk around the city once a day for six days, and then on the seventh day, I want you to walk around seven times and then yell. You know, like, I always think of like a four-year-old, ah, you know, like, just fall down. And, and then the walls fall, and they take the city. And then later on, when they're looking for a king, they have this young shepherd boy, David, and he comes to the experienced giant Goliath, and he kills him with a sling. Impossible story after impossible story after impossible story. This is God's MO. And it should cause each of us, I think, to ask the question and begin to look introspectively and say, is there anything in my life that I think is just too impossible for God? Is there anything going on in my life, my family, my work, my community that is just too impossible for God? Because here's the thing. If you can't trust God with the impossible in your life, where will you turn? If you can't trust God with the impossible in your life, where will you turn? Maybe you say, okay, Gabe, that's not me. I bring everything to God in prayer. 
Um, great. Let's talk about that. Um, are, you, are you giving some underhanded uh, prayers to God? What do I mean? I mean, how much fine print is in your prayers? To give you an example, God, help me with my rent. If it be your will, if you have the time, don't worry. I'll be fine just asking. God, heal my cousin's cancer. If you think it's okay, do you have the margin? Maybe it's not the best. Never mind. God, save my neighbor. If it's a part of your plan, if you have to give me the opportunity, it's probably no big deal. God, eradicate our nation of its racism. This is really the way it's always going to be. It's just an escapable part of the fall. The world's going to burn anyway. What can I do? I know your hands are tied because it's sinful men. You know, like we do this in our prayers, maybe not to that extreme, but we have these phrases when we start praying that we think either God doesn't really care or he's not really capable, and so let me give him a way out. God, I'm dying here. I know you got better things to do. God, I don't know what to do with my marriage. He's worrying about something in Africa, you know, or maybe this is his will. There's an element where we surrender and we don't know how God will do and carry out his purposes. But the question we need to ask is, how extravagant are our hopes? Do we actually believe that God can make your impossible possible? Is he capable of that? Does he care enough for that? Such that it shapes our prayers that we can come to him. Some of you know this about me, but I hate asking for help and... Some of you are really annoyed with the fact that I'm not very good at asking for help. I'm getting better at it, so I don't need your help. But I think um, one, one, area, um, one area that this really pops up is usually when I'm loading up the car for vacations or coming back from vacations. Um, I don't even think Allie knows about this, but I was loading up the car at, at my in-law's house this past Thanksgiving, and I try to carry as much as I can. And I don't want anybody to get the door for me, so I'm walking, and I, I've got way too much. And I've got this big bag of baby food in my face, too. And somebody says, I don't even remember who it was in the house. But they say, hey, can I get the door for you? I said, no, 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 I've got it, I've got it. I'm fine, 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 I'm fine. You know, and I'm trying to do everything I can. I look like an idiot, like I just did now. And I don't want anybody to help me. And some of you are spending your life trying to carry it all. And if it doesn't, if it feels too impossible, you become cynical become bitter. If you can't carry it, no one can carry it. And you get weighed down by the fact that God might actually make the impossible possible in your life. You you can't even imagine that. And some of you in here this morning need to stop carrying it all. You need to be able to lay things down because God loves the impossible and he picks impossible people and he prefers impossible methods And if you can't trust God with the impossible in your life, where will you turn? You're going to try to carry it yourself, or you're going to be frustrated, bitter, and cynical because no one can carry it. Let's jump back into Luke's interview here with Mary once more. You can kind of imagine, um, once again, Luke is just, he gets, I can imagine if I were Luke, I just want to get to the end of the movie. I'm at that point, it's at the climax okay, Mary, I, I hear you're the impossible candidate. You're a virgin. No one else was expecting this. Now you're going to have the Son of God, and it's going to be the Holy Spirit that's going to somehow overshadow you. Tell me, you've, you've, you had to have felt powerless, right? What was your first reaction to all of this? Were you outraged? Were you scared? And what we find out about Mary, the more we read, I can't help but her responding with almost a perplexed look at Luke. From what we know here from Luke's account, 
I could easily say, look, hear, see, hear her say, look, I am the servant of the Lord, period. What God says will happen, I will accept. What he calls me to do, I will do. And then the angel disappeared, okay? <laughs> and if you look at verse 38, that's her answer. It's straight up humility, just utter surrender to who God is and what he's going to do. And when we think about a God who loves the impossible, picks impossible people, prefers impossible methods, he's always pursuing impossible faith. Always pursuing impossible faith. Mary didn't have a pregnancy test. <laughs> you know, maybe she felt a little queasy and maybe she was a little late. But she wouldn't know for sure for a couple more months. The only thing she could do is go see Elizabeth. Because the angel said, hey, you want a sign? Your cousin, Elizabeth, is also going to have a child, and it's going to feel like that's impossible because everybody's amazed that this is happening. And so Mary packs her bags. Actually, the text says she leaves in haste, right? She leaves quickly. And Luke continues to write down what Mary's talking about and remembers packing her bags, and she travels almost 80 to 100 miles, which is about three or four days in walking, to a town in Judah, to Zach and Liz's house. And you can almost imagine as she's making this trek with every step, thinking, what are my parents going to say? What are my neighbors going to say? What's Joseph going to say? Gosh, what am I going to do with my life? Is this, how is this going to change everything? And as soon as she walks into Liz's place, her, and she hears Mary, and Liz hears Mary's voice, before Mary can almost say anything, Liz just starts shouting. She starts running towards Mary before she can tell Liz about what happened with the angel. Liz just runs to, to Mary and says, blessed are you and blessed is the child within you. The child that I have within me left when it heard your voice. And you're blessed because you believed that what God said would happen would happen. And here you are. You took the trek. That's what we see. I mean, it wasn't a short trip. This wasn't an offhand decision. This took a lot of planning to go see Elizabeth. And the fact that Mary goes means she actually believed the angel Gabriel, enough to go check out the sign. You see, the life that's possible with this kind of God, a God that loves the impossible, it always requires faith, always. And sometimes it feels crazy, but what in life doesn't, right? I mean, when somebody proposes to you, or you propose to someone, you don't have all the answers to all of your questions. You don't even know what all your questions are. But you've got to know that person enough that as the questions come and as new answers are developed, you're going to trust them. In work, maybe you, you get a new job offer that's in a different department or in a different uh, place in the nation or even the world. And you may not even know all the answers from this company or even all the questions to ask. But you know the company's a good company and you sent, it sounds like this new department's a great department, so you trust them and you get some raise and then you go. Every aspect of life requires this element of trust where you're still going to have questions and you're still going to wrestle with answers. So faith is actually really normal. That's maybe refreshing. It was for me as I think about faith because it's like everything else in life. I like how Frederick Buechner actually describes faith. It's one foot on the ground, one foot in the air, and a pit in your stomach pit in your stomach. That doesn't mean we stop asking questions. That doesn't mean we get some vision and then go rogue by ourselves somewhere, because what does Mary do? She asks questions, and she actually corroborates it with Elizabeth, right? She still does it in community. 
But when God speaks, he calls us to respond, and that's what faith is. You hear God speak, you see what God has done, and you respond with trust. And when we think about this impossible story, we can think, what a strange response. But when we think about who God is, what he's done throughout history, and how he's spoken, it actually starts to make sense. You see, Luke's main goal here in writing his gospel account is helping us understand how Jesus got to earth. But he's also telling us how Mary played a part. But if you take one step further, then we also find that he's talking about how we fit in that story as well. And it forces us to ask the question that when you chose to follow Jesus or you're thinking about following Jesus, he messes up your life a little bit. When Jesus, when Jesus entered Mary's life, it messed up all of her family goals, all of her family plans. Her life was never going to be the same. When the good news of the gospel comes, it kind of messes things up a little bit from our nice, tidy, and neat lives. Do your desires or your goals require any sort of faith, or do you just want a comfortable, nice, and neat life? Because if your life doesn't require impossible faith, who are you really following? If your life doesn't require impossible faith, when we look across the pages of Scripture, the history of God's people throughout time, if your life doesn't require impossible faith, you have to ask yourself, who are you really following? Because God's always going to call us to do things that feel uncomfortable. What, What about your goals for your work? What about your goals for your family, for your own life, for your sex life, for your finances, for your community, for this church? Do they require faith? Do they require God to do an impossible act in a possible world? If not, I want to ask a different kind of question. Is that the kind of life you want? Is that the life, kind of life that seems intriguing to you? I was reading uh, Donald Miller's book, um, A Million Miles in a Thousand Years, and there was one passage that actually stirred up the stagnant waters in my own life to begin thinking about this. And he writes... If you watched a movie about a guy who wanted a Volvo and worked for years to get it, you wouldn't cry at the end when he drove off the lot testing the windshield wipers. You wouldn't tell your friends you saw a beautiful movie or go home and put a record on to think about the story you'd seen. The truth is, you wouldn't remember that movie about a guy who wanted a Volvo. But we spend years actually living those stories and expect our lives to feel meaningful. If God loves the impossible, and he picks impossible people, and he prefers impossible methods, and he pursues impossible faith, ask yourself the question, how has God spoken, and how is he calling you to respond? For some of you, this may be really obvious, because as you've been reading the Bible, God's called you to stop doing something or to start doing something for your good, for his glory. And that's step one, listening to what he's already said. What has he called you to stop doing and to, or to start doing for your good and for his glory? Start there. For some of you, as soon as we started talking about this, you've had an idea that's been in your mind. It feels like an impossible idea. I want you to take that idea out of your mind and I want you to write it on your note sheet or whatever you're taking notes on. Maybe it's an idea that's been in your mind for the past couple of days, past couple of weeks, months, years. And you're thinking, okay, maybe God's calling me to get engaged with this. I've been scared. It feels impossible. It feels like there's so much that needs to be done for this, and I don't think I'm up to it. What I want you to do after you've written that down or you think about it is to reach out to a 
a friend who's also following Jesus, either after this gathering, grab him on the shoulder, give him a call, email him and say, let's have coffee. I want to talk with you about this. Because maybe God's laid something on your heart to do that seems impossible that's going to have his fingerprints all over it. I don't know, maybe. And then there are some of you in here this morning, and maybe that's a majority, maybe not, who you know your life should be different, but you don't know how. You feel like God is calling you to some sort of impossible faith, but you, you don't know how. What I would encourage you to do is to spend some time reading scripture. You can either use open here, pick a book of the Bible, and read through and remember how God picks impossible people and loves the impossible and begin praying about this this week. And then reach out to a friend and say, hey, is there anything in my life that you see? Open yourself up to someone, maybe who is in your community group, a close friend who's also following Jesus, and say, hey, I need your help here. I don't want to be the guy who writes a story about a Volvo. <laughs> Volvo's a great car. I'm not trying to put down Volvos, whatever. But ask yourself, what is God calling you to? And, and I need to, at the end of this, I want to give you a disclaimer because whatever God's calling you to is going to cost you something. Whatever God's calling you to, it's going to cost you something. If it's a new entrepreneurial venture for the good of our city, it's going to cost you time, capital, energy, maybe even your reputation. If it's to mend a relationship, it's going to be humbling yourself to forgive someone or humbling yourself to receive forgiveness. If it's to end a toxic or a destructive relationship, it's going to require trusting God in a way that, well, if I end this relationship where I'm getting some kind of love, I, I risk the chance of not getting any kind of love. But maybe God's calling you to end that relationship because it's just destructive. For others of you, it could be any, one, any number of things at your work, in our community. But I want you to hear what God's calling you to. It will cost you something. I mean, if we just look at Mary's response of her impossible faith, where does it take her? The woman in our story who's called blessed among all women actually lives her whole life with the stigma of being pregnant outside of marriage in a shame-based culture. Blessed among women, Mary, who grows or watches Jesus grow up and has to defend the claims that he's an illegitimate child. Blessed among women, Mary watches as Jesus grows up and is a carpenter for a while and asking the question, God, when are your promises coming true? Did I really dream this whole thing up? Blessed among women, Mary, trying to pull Jesus out of controversy time and again. And yet he goes back into controversy because it's his calling to the cross. Blessed among women, Mary listens in on the trials of when her son is being falsely accused, the son of God who is then beaten. He's mocked. He's mutilated and crucified. And the pain she must feel that only a mother could know as she watches her son on the cross Breathe his last before her and dies. Blessed among women. What a strange way to save the world, right? What an impossible story. A virgin who has impossible faith and watches God do the impossible through her by bringing the Savior of the universe to earth. The question we ask ourselves is, how will we respond? If God loves the impossible, he picks impossible people, prefers impossible methods, pursues impossible faith, how will re we respond? And what if we actually took this seriously? Not something that was really nice and we hmmed on Sunday morning. You're like, hmm. You know, what, what if this really changed the way we lived such that we believed that God could do the impossible in those impossible scenarios in our life?
How would it change your marriage? How would it change your outlook and how you're engaging that cause in the community? How would it change your work? Well, like Mary, it may take a whole life long to prove that we are the most blessed in the gospel among all people. She lived her life with this stigma for years, 30 plus years, before finally the Christian community was like, oh, no one believed her. And now the beauty is that we don't find ourselves alone. The same Holy Spirit that somehow overshadowed Mary and then she became pregnant, the same Holy Spirit who spoke through Elizabeth to confirm that she was pregnant and would give birth to the Son of God is the same Holy Spirit who indwells the impossibles in this room to play a possible part in God's impossible story. And God loves his story and he loves you. And God will always work the ways he loves to work. But the question we're left with is the same question that was posed to Mary and it's posed to us, how will you respond? Not your neighbor, not your spouse, not that friend you wish was here this morning to hear this message, but you. How will you respond to a God who loves the impossible, who picks impossible people, prefers impossible methods, and pursues impossible faith? How will you respond? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you that you are not a faraway, distant God who ignores his creation and left it just to its own demise, but you have always had a plan of redemption, of interacting, of weaving together a plan of deliverance. And it's centered in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And we're thankful that you've invited us to be a part of that story. You invited Mary to be a part of that story. And God, may we, may we trust you, a God who loves the impossible, who's possible with the impossible. Whatever's going on in our life right now, whatever's going on in our relationships, whatever, whatever's going on in our work, God, may you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, just grant us the ability to trust you in the midst of brokenness. I pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, before Jesus went to the cross, he gave those who follow him a meal to remember that God has indeed made the impossible possible in the gospel. And it is this gospel we proclaim to our senses of taste and touch and smell here in the Lord's Supper through common elements. When the bread is broken, it reminds us of Christ's body broken for us Through common juice poured, we remember his blood shed for the forgiveness of our sins. If you're new, let me walk you through just quickly how we go about this together as a community. Uh, First, we ask that you would have proclaimed Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior before you partake. If you have yet to follow Jesus, we're really glad you're here. I want you to know that. We learn from you. Keep asking questions. Keep coming. And I ask that you'd use this time to be praying that Jesus would reveal himself to you. He longs to know you. He doesn't think you're impossible. Um, and he's shown that time and time again. So be praying during this time. If you do come, you can come down one of our two aisles and you're going to circle around to the back. You'll gather in groups of four to six. You'll take the bread, dip it in the juice, and partake together. If you have a child who is yet to proclaim Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, our communion servers will offer a blessing in the same vein that Jesus blesses children when they come to him. But before we come and participate together, let's partake, or let's remember. 
that on the night the Lord Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whenever you're ready, please come.